Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, it's um, it's Tuesday afternoon, and this is the week before Rosh Hashanah, and we've got a lot of work to do, teaching and otherwise, getting ready. So I'm going to see if I can possibly squeeze this in now in between classes, um, because uh, I'd like to keep to my schedule more or less. And uh, I saw it's the, it's the biography of the Malbim, and to tell you the truth, I'm not home. Ordinarily, I wouldn't go into somebody as complicated as the Malbim, but since it so happened that l- last week, at someone's solicitation, I did the Maris Chayas, so Maris Chayas, that just put me in the mood, in the mind, sort of compare and contrast with the mom because they both lived more or less at the same time. And um, I'm not a Plutarch. You know, Plutarch wrote the book with the lies of the Romans and the Greeks, where he always takes one from the Romans and one from the Greeks, and then after giving the biography, does compare and contrast. But one could do a very interesting sort of thing if you did it with famous rabbinical personalities, you know, compare and contrast. But I'm not going to do that. Uh, at least I don't plan to. By the time I finish, who knows where I'll be. I don't know if there's anything ever worked out over here. Uh, I'm just trying to hop a few minutes to put this out. Today's uh, talk is being sponsored by somebody based anonymous from Flatbush, and so I'll honor the request. But as always, we're grateful for all the uh, sponsors and uh, helping more people in the future. So I do thank the person and his family. And as I say, I'm going to try to see if I can put together something coherent on the album. Who? Well, for those of you, you must be living in the moon if you don't know who he is. Now, he lived in the 19th century. So this is somebody who was a rabbi who lived in 1809 to 1879. You know, smacked through the 1800s. And um, a very complicated life. I don't think most people know who the Malvin was, which is why I'm going to say a few words about him today. Uh, very unusual personality. Uh, basically, uh, he's somebody who wanted to succeed as a guttural and in the rabbin, it didn't quite do it because you got to live in the right time, be related to the right family and all the rest of it. It didn't seem to work out for him. At least that's my understanding of it. And yet, he was a genius. Uh, the Malbib, uh, which that's not his real name, you know, uh, his new real name was Weiser. His father, he came from a small town, a little village, in uh, Volynia, which is in the heart of Poland and Ukraine, you know, that area, most of you don't even know what I'm talking about, the belly button of Jewish center of Eastern Europe. Volynia is the real Poland, both of real Ukraine. In fact, they just made a movie a year or two ago, the Polish did about called Volyn, to talk about how the Ukrainians massacred uh, brutally the Poles in the middle of World War II. In other words, half the time the Ukrainians spent killing Jews, but the other half the time they went spent killing Poles, even though they weren't Jewish. It's a rough part of the world. But when he lived there in the 1800s, it was um, uh, right near the Galician border. You can more or less consider the Malbim a Galician, even though he just lived over the border into uh, Russia. Uh, that's the Eastern Europe, you know what I mean. And uh, But he, his career took him in a lot of places. Now, he's born in 1809 in this small little place. No one's ever heard of Milchuski. And here's the key point. Father was a guns fine. He had a Talmud Chacham and all the rest of it, living in that small town. And he died when he was six years old. So, no, the mom was an orphan at six. And I think this really affected him, as it is always the case if someone loses a parent, God forbid, an early age. His mother, um, I think he was an only child, I think. His mother, she was ap- he was the apple of her eye, and uh, she saw, already at the age of six, that he's got big talents about Kishrin. The Malba will never have a normal education, a Torah education either. He's a, a grand product of the Bismarck system. The mother, uh, 
remarried a year later, two years later, to a Talmachacham who lived in the town. Like, so now he has a stepfather. And because the boy was a Valkishwan, so in that part of the world, in those years, you know, either you had it or you didn't. You know, if you didn't have it, you're out of the cheder, you go to work. That's all. But if you have it, then, uh, you know, then, then you could possibly have a career in Torah scholarship. And he was learning different in that little town with the stepfather and then with the local Rav, Horowitz. This is what we call Bismedrish. In other words, he didn't have a yeshiva education. Not that the yeshivas are so organized in terms of curriculum either, but it has some kind of a, 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 a tzura, perhaps, of an institution. But in those years, as I'm sure I mentioned, must have mentioned many times over here, uh, in that part of Europe especially, there are very few yeshivas. Instead, people just learn it on, like he did, in the, in the local town, in the local base Uh There's no mashkiach, there was no uh, curriculum, there was no uh, schedule. Uh, if you felt like learning, you did. If you didn't feel like learning, the heck with it, then you don't. You run off. And, you know, that system produced its share of gadolim, just like the yeshiva system did. In fact, if you're interested in independent, separate personalities, probably is more conducive to that, because it didn't try to make you into a volusioner, didn't try to turn you into a brisker, didn't try to turn you into a telzer, you know? They developed however you did. Meenach Gisa, you have no guidance. And I get the impression from the Malmi, the Vilde Eloy, and nobody uh, guided him in a curricular sense. We do know that the, that the local rabbi and the stepfather, they were Tamil Chachamim, they also knew, um, what shall I say, you know, uh, they're very from, they're against Limuri Chol together. The Malmi had no secular education, which hurt him in life. And, um, uh, but they, but as far as Jewish is concerned, you know, they knew, you know, the Mernavuchim, the Chavos Alvavos, the, the, the Kuzari, that kind of stuff. Even Kabbalah they were into. And so you have a young guy, this is very typical, except he's a genius. A young guy growing up in Eastern Europe, in these small communities, uh, if you're a Balkishan and you have an Atiyah towards learning, it can be done at a local level. And there's nothing stopping a person, like I'm talking about, for finishing shots, correct? Or whatever else you want to finish. And uh, since it was the local robes, I'm sure he also kind of got him in halacha. You know, you learn Shulchan Aruch and that sort of thing as well. And that's who the Malbim is as a young boy. Uh, when he was, mm, I don't know, 12, something like that. So uh, they sent him to go learn a yeshiva in Warsaw. And it's not a yeshiva. You know, I mean, in other words, a, a uh, base medrash with somebody giving a shear there. So basically, it's an autodidact. That's what I'm trying to bring out. Somebody who, who uh, you know, is learning on their own. Very Polish. Uh, very Polish. Um, that, you know, you're into what you're into, or what you're not into what you're not into, and as the uh, thing takes you. But a, a brilliant mind he had. Zeloy, you know. Which is why, um, even though he's, a, he's a, um, an orphan, and in Eastern Europe... An orphan was a minus. Now, it's not your fault. God forbid, you know, it's not your fault you lost a, a parent. You're right. It's a cruel world out there. They would look at an orphan. This is very important to understand, at least to me, all I can ever tell you the way I understand it. I understand them all, but people look down on an orphan. It's wrong. That's how it used to be. And, uh, you know, he's always fighting against it to show I'll be keen, I will triumph, you know, like that. Give a hard personality, so we put it this way, I think. And uh, because he was very good in learning, so he, he got married at 14, which was very common. Uh, obviously, they put it together with somebody, a girl must have had money or something like that. It's notorious that the marriage wasn't good. And by 18, he got divorced with two kids. So what kind of world? This is the, the world of our ancestors, way back when. By 15, you're a father. Children having children. By 16, you have two kids. 17, you have two kids. And the girl, too. This is how life was lived. Um, and he got divorced. It was a messy divorce. He had nothing to do with the kids. I believe if I remember correctly, they went off to Derek or something like that. You know, it, it, it's like that. And uh, so here's a guy who's Eloyish, who had a bad marriage. And by the way, you can just imagine, it, it, you're already operating with two strikes. The father died when he's six, and the marriage fell apart when he's 18. You know, in other words, their personal life is not perfect. 
And uh, he didn't get married for nine years. Okay, nine years later, he married a rich girl. Daddy stayed married too. Um, and so here's a guy, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22. And uh, what are you doing? And we're dealing with somebody who's, uh, was it, uh, 1833? It's 1830s. Right? Did I say it right? 1823. Uh, no, no, no. Yeah, that's right. In the 1820s. So here's somebody now who's uh, 18, 1827, and who's uh, late teen. And in that world, you're already an adult if you want to be. And he learned up a storm. So Shas, post game, that kind of thing. Oh, yeah. He knows better anybody else. Pilpul, Lumdus, he's very good. And he wanted to be somebody, which is nothing wrong. And uh, he wanted to be in the Rabbonus. Now, it's his goal, it's pretty clear in life, wasn't to be a Magadshi or Rosh Hashiva. That's a certain type, right? Many other people, they wanted the rabbinate. I'm talking about the community rabbinate. Brother Bukihol. Uh, that's who raised him. Uh, it's totally fine. Now, how are you going to get that? Uh, you have to shine somehow or other. How are you going to shine? A lot of other people know how to learn as well. This is when he wrote his famous Sefer at Arsus Achaim. Uh, on on uh, Orchaim, you know, which is Mr. Burr quotes and the others. You know, what is it again? I haven't seen it in years. Since it's, you know, in the first part of the Orchaim. Uh, with full of lumdis and that sort of thing. And that's like a calling card. And let's put it this way. He worked on this, and then he took it around to different communities to get haskamas. So that if people get a safer and they see it's got a hush of haskamas from the gedolim, well, then you're not just anybody anymore. Not everybody can produce this. So now there's nothing wrong with what I just said. You want to get ahead, you do it by distinguishing yourself through public scholarship. In the university, well, that's how it goes. In the rabbinical world, to, to some extent. Remember, he wasn't married to the right family. He didn't come from the right thing. He's an orphan. You know, he's an Eloy. There are a lot of Eloy running around. How do you make yourself stand out? And so, there are many mice over here. I forget exactly how it goes that uh, he sat in the Chassam Silver seat by accident or something like that. The Chassam Silver was angry. It's all kind of mice. You know, if it's true. But here's the interesting part. His trips took him outside of Eastern Europe. He went uh, to Pressburg, to Amsterdam, uh, to Breslau, and places like that. It would meet with the local rov, and he'd show him what I wrote, and talk to him in learning, because that's really what it boils down to. Who are you? My name is so-and-so. You talk to the guy in learning, see if you, if, if you know. By the way, he also stopped um, by the Hasidim, by the Zidish Rebbe, even though the mom was a Misnagid. Uh, very interesting. All through his life, he will certainly not be Hasidic, and the Hasidim in a lot of places won't like him, although in other places they kind of will. Um, but I think he went to the Zidat Shabrav to learn Kabbalah, because this is the one who wrote the Surmi Rav Asetov. You know, he was a big Makubal, the uh, first Zidat Shabrav. Uh, and so he went to him in, in, in that way. So this is somebody who's getting an education in the old fashioned sense of the grand tour. You don't go to school, you don't go to college, or in this case, you don't go to yeshiva. But rather, you go through life. You know, you visit a lot of the kills, you see what people are talking about, you come with a huge amount of learning to begin with, and you acquire a broad uh, perspective. So you put it that way. And as I said before, one of the places he stopped in was Breslau, which today is in Poland, but that time was in Prussia, in East Prussia. I'm sorry, in uh, Silesia. Not that that means anything to you. And these are places that are doing half Poland, half Germany. And Breslau, at that time, was in the middle of a major battle over reform movement. It's a very famous uh, episode in um, in Jewish history, where Abraham Geiger, or Davi Avos Atoma of the reform movement, was trying to get in uh, a stellar as the assistant rabbi to the Rav. The Rav was Shlomo Tikton, from guy, and they're trying to, and the left wing members of the Kehillah, it was in Germany, you know, uh, tried to stoop in. A reform guy, who he said isn't so bad, uh, as the assistant rabbi, to in other words, to, to untergrubben, you know, to, to dig under the official rabbi and bring it in. You know, I'm going to give you an example. This is really not the same thing. It's not the same thing, but I can't help but use it anyway. It's not the same thing. But I use it anyway. Imagine you have somebody 
for example, there's rabbi of a community of a big show of all different types, and this guy's a real from rabbi. Let's say, for example, he's from Lakewood, Chaim Berlin, something like that. Now, one of the elements in the show, so he goes, we want to bring in a guy from Avi Weiss. As a sister rabbi, just a sister rabbi. I'm saying it's the same thing, but it's, it's similar. Or you can just imagine what a commotion, and he's not from, and this and that. Yes, he is. This is what was going on when the Malbim was in Pressburg. Uh, excuse me, in Breslau. And he naturally sided with the local Rav, because the mom was very from, and uh, tried to support him to the degree he can. I mean, what can he support him? He's a, a young guy in his 20s. He came to get a Haskama for the Safer. But he got close with this Rav Shlomo Tikton, who didn't win. I mean, Geiger got in. But uh, as a result, Rav Shlomo Tikton said, like, you're a, first of all, I like you. You're a friend of mine. Second of all, I see you're talking about how to learn. I mean, you really know how to learn. Uh, the mom already was a divorced guy uh, at the age of 30. They've been traveling around here and there. And he's like this, I'll get you stellar in a small uh, community. I have some uh, pull around here in eastern Germany and Prussia. This is Silesia, I said before. This is the parts of Prussia that had formerly been Poland and the Prussians had taken it over. So I'm not going to go into more detail than that. And... Um, as a result, he said, I know a place where I can get you in, stop you in as a rov. And he got, he did it in Vreshen. This is the part of Poland, what they call the Grand Duchy of Posen, maybe Kivega was over there, where there were uh, old Polish communities which were annexed by Prussia, and now they're in the slow process of switching to Germanism. Okay? And he became the rov there in this small community. Um, and after a couple years, I think it was like seven years. After a couple of years, uh, and meanwhile, he got married, and uh, then he got to a job in another community over there, Kempen. These are places today that are all in Poland. Uh, none of these are very large communities at all. M- more importantly, they're not Torah centers. The Jews were old, Polish, Prussian Jews. They were from, you know, traditional Jews. They kept everything. That time, 1830s. But uh, the kids are starting to go off to Derek. And the kids are interested in Germanizing, getting secular education. Why not? And that means that the Malbim, during his 30s and uh, and much of his 40s, those acre years of his life, was a, a rabbi uh, in what I would call not significant communities, which is funny. Uh, but he got the cellar. It wasn't so easy to get a cellar anywhere. It's a Rovakil. And he got approved by the Prussian government and all that. All this was not easy in those days. And uh, he, he basically, uh, you could sit and learn, but uh, there's nobody to talk to in learning. This is the key point I want to get across. There's nobody to talk to in learning. Where are you going to go? Give a pilpal shear? Which he could easily. Look at the Arts of Zahim. Easily. He knew Shas, he knew Lumdus. Totally. To who? A bunch of, uh, they're not Gekas exactly, is, is the decadent element of the old Polish-German communities. You know, maybe a generation earlier he would have had who to talk to. Now he doesn't. They're nice ball about him. They come to Davening. They keep Shabbos, basically, you know, like that. Learned they're not. And I tell you again, the big problem was what's happening to the youth. And the mom wasn't stupid. He saw that these kids are uh, going off the... Uh, you know, off the uh, the road, or or look like they're going to. And what bothered him is, how do you get to the young? Uh, how do you get to the middle class? Because they were all striving to join the European middle class. How do you do that? Now, you can't just give them musr. You can't just scream at them. Uh, and you can't show off your alumnus. There's nobody to talk to. And so over these years, in his 30s and 40s, he clearly came to see, because he's very talented, that uh, you need a different approach, and uh, you have to sort of, I don't want to use the word dumb it down, but I'll use the word dumb it down. You have to dumb it down. Take, for example, uh, giving sermons and drushes. You can't give a, a pilpal thing. Uh, there's no point. So you have to learn to bring things down to people level. You get it? Simple, straight, muscles, and a lot of stuff from the Bible. And in general, 
I think that he came to see that Gemara is a waste of time with these people. Maybe Tanakh not. Maybe Tanakh not. Especially Germany was still pietistic. Although, during these years, when he was the rabbi in these communities, especially the second one in Kempen, that is when the reform movement Mama started. And he refers to this in his books. And he freaked out, you know, because the original reform movement wanted to change all the halachas. Okay? We're talking about the famous uh, rabbinical uh, assemblies in, in Brunswick and in Frankfurt and all those places that took place in the middle 1840s, which really made the reform movement, the reform Judaism that we know today. <coughs> you know, the 13 Ani Loma means. And, you know, how's he, how does he deal with this? Okay? How does he deal with this? And uh, it seems to me that uh, he must have felt... Now, I read a book years ago by a professor from YU in Hebrew, long ago, I don't remember it, Ning. And he gave like a critical biography of the mob, which wasn't bad, but a little hard-edged. Uh, but I remember he, he made the point that uh, at that time he still had the, the uh, remnants of the Haskalah uh, going on in Germany, uh, especially in Eastern Germany. I spoke about this a month or two ago when I talked about uh, Mecklenburg, the Xaver Kabbalah. Uh, and let's put it this way, the Berlin Haskalah was very much Bible-oriented. Moses Mendelssohn became most famous and notorious for his Chumash, right? And others were writing other books. At the Tanakh. A lot of books were coming out on the Tanakh from German-speaking territories, from the Maskilun, uh which basically were left-wing commentaries. Left-wing along the whole range of that. And this seemed to be, you know, the way to uh, explain the Bible. Very similar to Christian, whatever, uh, in, in the way. Even though they wrote these things in Hebrew a lot of times, or in German. Now, the Malbim himself, uh, therefore, sitting in this little town, with time in his hands, with not that much to do, uh, and possessed, by the way, of a very uh, combative and cantankerous personality. This was his big undoing in the rabbinate. He didn't get along with people. Now, I have to modify that. The best I can tell, he didn't get along with the richy riches. He himself had been a poor boy. He himself had been an orphan. He understood life in Eastern Europe was cruel. He understood that these communities are run by uh, always a small clique of uh, you know rich people or the local equivalent of that. Usually a bunch of little Hitlers or something like this, and he went around the, the whole community. Uh, he was sort of like the antithesis of that, and frankly, to be successful in the communal rabbit, you had no how to get along. I didn't say kiss up necessarily, but you had no how to get along with all the rich guys. He wasn't built that way. Um, it's a very interesting feature of his personality. Uh, he developed a hard exterior uh, because he wasn't the type. I mean, it, let me put it this way: he's constitutionally incapable of kissing up to the rich and powerful. You know? And not only that, he was so turned off by that that he went the other extreme. <laughs> you follow? And so he always made himself somewhat uh, you know, unpopular. Although in Germany, they liked him. In these communities, they liked him. Small communities, whatever. It's clearly, he was a gone. And you should know, he got shallots from all over the place. He wrote a lot of shallots and shivas. He never collected them and put them into a... a, 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 a collection, he'd be famous in a different way. The same way, like, he could have finished the Arts of Zechayim. It's a very chashua, uh halacha book, and lamdus book, halacha and lamdus. And if he would have been a different type of person, in my opinion, had he been guided, uh, you know, more uh, uh, intelligently, should, should I say, that might be the right, right word, somebody would have told him, uh, you know, if he, if he had better connections with big people, they would have told him, Keep up the Arts of the Chaim. Finish the whole Chaim, and that'll be like a mission abroad. You know, it'll put you on the map. You know, in, in in a way that nothing else will. But he was alone, and he was in these small communities. And like I say before, it's true that somewhere along the line, when he was a rabbi in this town, he finally got married, and married a rich girl, and that enabled him at least not to worry about money so much. I mean, the father-in-law didn't totally bankroll him, but he knew that it's there if necessary. You know what I mean? Because it's nice to have. Original as a fallback. That's how he had it, as a fallback. But um, it was pretty clear that he felt you need a new tzura. And that's when he started writing on the Tanakh. That's the point I'm getting at. First he wrote on Yeshayo, and then other things. 
because his contention obviously was that the Haskalah has it wrong. Uh, well, let's put it this way. The Haskalah is misguided, but he knows the right way. The Haskalah has issues with connecting the Torah with the Torah Shabbat. Uh, the Haskalah has, feels that the Torah Shabbat often deviates from the Pshat and therefore is wrong. And uh, it's actually something Jews should be ashamed of. Now, what we need is a return to Ibn Ezra, you know, that, that kind of approach. It's very much the style of the, of the Haskalah. The uh, Malbim, who was a genius, and he knew Kol Torah. I think, I'm pretty sure about this. He knew Kol Torah. He, he really knew a Velt. A Velt. Uh, he was a gigantic Lamdan, even though you wouldn't know because he just wrote on the Tanakh. But he was a big deal. Uh, so, I'm sure he couldn't stand all these losers writing these commentaries on Tanakh and all that. Like, what do they know? Because let's face it, a lot of times somebody will say like this, eh, I'm not interested in what the rabbinic literature has in the subject. That's because you're not Maritz, you just don't know it. <laughs> Get it? I mean, a lot of times it's like that. Jewish scholars, especially the last 200 years, in the academic world, is, eh, I'm not interested in it. Not you're not interested, you don't know it. <laughs> okay? Yeah, yeah. You're unlearned. So therefore you machavek with the hands what you don't know. And he knew. He knew all the Midrashim, the Medesh HaLoch and Medesh he knew Shas Bavli Yishalmi. He knew, you know, all that business. You see? And uh, he therefore said like this, to have a proper masculine commentary, that might be might, not, might the wrong word, a proper modern commentary to the Bible in which you show to show how the Chazal really do understand the shot level and what they're uh, explaining, uh, particularly in the Gemara, it's not wild stuff. Uh, it's actually connected to the meaning of it. Uh, now, it's hard to make that case. And I think, if I remember correctly, the first thing he wrote was Megillus Esther. If you've ever seen the Malibu Megillus Esther, I saw years ago and read the copy with the English. It's a very unusual and kind of uh, convoluted way of understanding the Megillus. It's nice, but it's very far from what you would imagine is the regular shot in Megillus Esther. doesn't matter. He said, no, I'm wrong. Katz is wrong. This is what really happened, because you're not reading Pesukim closely. Now, he brought a mind that was very chiddishtik, very harifis. Uh, again, w- w- he knows Kol Tarakula. Very populistic. But he introduced that genre, in my opinion, into the uh, analysis of the Nach, you understand? which is a funny thing, but that's who the Malbim was. And um, anyway, he started becoming the Malbim, meaning... He did something very unusual. A guy like him ordinarily should have finished the Arts of Chaim, or written Shalos and Shuvahs, and then he would climb to the top of the world and, uh, you know, and, and, and consider what the Gedoli Adar. No, I'm wrong. He was considered one of the Gedoli Adar. But they, just people couldn't understand, why are you wasting your time writing on Tanakh? That's what they talked about. I read many times the following story, which is remarkable. And I think it was Rechaim Brisker, maybe? He was somebody like that. Some student in yeshiva came to me and said, oh, I'm, a, I'm a failure. I don't have the head. Yeah, I don't have the head. My whole life is a failure. I, wa- I, I wanted to be something in learning. I'll never be something in learning. I just don't have it. And Rechaim, I think it was Rechaim or somebody like that, told me, said, no, don't feel like that. You know, not everybody is cut out to be a genius. You know, and so on and so forth. And he said to him, listen, not everybody can be a genius, a God Ador, like the Vilna Gon or the Malbim. <laughs> you ordinarily wouldn't think of the Malba in the same league as the Vilna Gon in terms of learning. And I don't mean exactly, of course, but in other words, that's not who, who comes up to your mind when it comes to learning. People really held from him big. And there were a number of times when he was offered the position to be the Rav of Vilna, which is shocking. That's a big position, the Rav of Vilna. And, uh, you know, some people held him like another Shagatsari, and it's quite remarkable. Now, he didn't go that route. Now, one thing I will say, when he was in this town, so um, he started working on the, uh, putting out the Tanakh stuff, Bible commentary, in his own unique way. He wanted it to be the proper Haskell way. But the Maskilim said it's too from, you know. And, and for a lot of other people, they said it's too Maskilic. Although, certainly in the Litvisha world, they liked it very much. And, you know, Rabbi Shal Salanter bought a set, and the Chavetz Chaim later bought a set, and, you know, it got, it got in there. 
it's it has certain qualities of the Haskalah, especially the Ivrit style and the and the Melitzas, oh my goodness. His Melitzas, you know, his prolix po- poetical way of writing. But uh again, it's it's a native genius. No, nobody showed him how to do it, he, he invented this all himself. Uh, th- that's what's remarkable about the album. He kind of tossed this stuff off. He also um I would say perfect himself as, a, as an orator, as a darshan. Uh, as the time went by, especially in Eastern Europe, like Russia, the Malbim, in terms of being a darshan, can be considered number one. He's like another, uh, what do you call it, like a, a Jonas Amschitz type. You know, not quite, but something like that. He was the great uh, darshan. And that means that he could darshan in several ways. And uh, it's an important part of who he was. He could darshan the Lamdash's stuff uh, if he wanted to easily. And he could also darshan simple, you know, that the average person could understand it, which was not so common. <coughs> and it's deep, and it's thoughtful, and it's beautifully expressed. He was a very interesting in this regard. This is the reason why communities want him as a rabbi. Get it? Because they figure with him, you're getting not the regular one. But he's not doing the regular thing a rabbi does. He's living in a small town in East Prussia. Really very small. Um, he's corresponding with others. He's publishing these commentaries on books at the Tanakh. They're very strange. Now, uh, I say again, this happened when he was in his 30s and 40s. In, in, in some respects, the best years of your life. And uh, he wasn't being properly used, let's put it that way. Which is why, when he's around 50 or so, he took a big step, and that is, he was offered a job to be Basically, the chief rabbi of a country. And um, and he took it, even though a lot of people told me you're crazy for taking it. This is Romania. Uh, Romania was a country, it was becoming a country at that time. This is in 1859. I'm not going to go through, I just don't feel like going through the whole history of Romania. It used to be two provinces, Wallachia and Moldavia. And they were ruled by the Turks, but they were semi-autonomous provinces ruled by Christian princes who were under the Turks. In the 19th century, they tried to break away from the Turks. And it's very kind of Crimean War. I ain't going into all that. Suffice it to say that he's moving from a small town to be the Rav in Bucharest of a community which is many thousands of people, 25, 30,000 people, is a fast-growing Kehillah of every type of Jew you can imagine. They have the Sepharadim from the time it was under Turkey. They have a ton of uh, German and Hungarian Jews that moved there for business purposes. Have a ton of Russian Jews. It's a, it's a it's like being it's not the same thing. It's like being the rabbi of New York, if you follow what I mean. No, there's a whole different bunch of. It's not designed for a kehillah. <laughs> you follow? It's not designed for kehillah because all different types. Uh, and how are you going to be a rub over there? He looked at it as a big challenge. He figured this is the big challenge of my life. If I can turn the place around, organize it, get the people to be from, this will make my this will be who I am. He was ready in the age of 50 to put his kochus into turning Romania into a Mokham Torah and all that sort of thing. In the middle of the 19th century, when Jews everywhere are moving to the left. Now, this is a, a, a famous business. When the Malbim came to Romania, so they had a big reception. And again, he was a fantastic speaker. And so people used to come to his rushes, uh, you know, on Saturdays. Crowds, crowds, you know, they'd be standing on the street, really. Uh, Romania was, at that time, what you call a principality, ruled by a prince. Uh, although, listen, you're talking about Romania over here. Bismarck said, Romania is not a country, it's a, prof- <laughs> it's a profession, it's a pickpocket, you know what I mean? Those remains all crooks, which was 100% true. And the Jews picked up, you know, from them. And uh, he ran afoul they had a left-wing element over there, led by a famous lawyer, this guy uh, Barash. He's actually a famous guy. And these guys, let's put it this way, one element in the community wanted to go left and make like reform or conservative. Now, others not. Had the Malbim... Now, it's easy for me to be a Monday morning quarterback, but I'll just tell you the way I understand it. I could be wrong, but I'll tell you the way I understand it. If he would have played his cards right... He would have said like this, listen, you left-wing guys, they're a small group, make your own shoal, 
heck with you, you know, have your choir, your organ, what do you want to do, and leave the rest of us in the general community to do our own way. You understand? And then it would be him competing against them. They would get whoever they get, but the rove would be with the Malbim, who was uh, obviously a from guy, and who definitely appealed to a large part of the population, being a great speaker, he was a nice guy, and as I said before, he was a champion of the poor. Or maybe I didn't say it clearly. He, he didn't like the rich, and so he's a champion of the poor, which was not so common for a rove. Okay? So in other words, you could come to his house, tell him a problem, he would listen, try to help you. This made him very, very popular among, shall we say, the Hamunam. This Fardim held from him. And you can't say he doesn't know anything. Now, by the way, one of the things he did when he was in Germany all those years was learn German. And I say he learned German great, but he learned German. Right? After all, he had time in his hands. And to live in Prussia, you kind of needed to do that. Now, he never had any education whatsoever. He never went to college, never went to elementary school even. So anything he learned was, was you know, what he picked up on his own. And this kind of handicapped him. So on the one hand, he can speak something other than Yiddish. He knew German. He didn't know a great German, he knew German. And he, he could read well. And while he was in Europe, I'm sorry, in Prussia, those little towns, he read up a storm. Notice, he self-educated. That's remarkable, because he was a genius. But he was a masculine in the sense of being self-educated. And, you know, it's always weird. So uh, he knew a lot of European culture and a lot of people culture he did not know. And I remember Hegel, he didn't know. Kant, he knew. Kant is, uh, <laughs> you know, was the god of philosophy at that time. And there are places in the Malbim, in the commentary on the Tanakh, where he brings in Kant and all the rest of it. But then again, he's not doing anything different than you find the Rishonim in the Middle Ages who quote Aristotle and Plato, do they not? So, you know, he's definitely not the regular rabbi, that's what I'm trying to say. And in Romania, he tried to force his way on them. And this backfired. You know, I told you, the left-wingers didn't want to uh, be part of kill, they want to do their own thing. Instead of isolating them, letting them do their own way, he said, you can't have your own shul, you definitely can't have an organ. Matter of fact, if you don't listen to me, I'll tell the shokhtim, it's also for them to sell you kosher meat. Isn't that weird? <laughs> you know, reform, reform guy said, I guess, good! <laughs> right? He he said like this, I'm the rover here, and therefore I'm going to run the from stuff. I uh, uh, order all the shokhtim have to bring their, their knives to me every day, uh, I'm going to run the, the Eruv. They really call hands-on active guy, uh, a rabbi. And uh, listen, he was a good speaker. It's very famous. He came to, <laughs> if I remember correctly, his opening speech, or one of the speeches in Romania was like this. I have to remember how it goes. He says, I came here in Romania, and a rabbi is like a, 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 a priest. You know, they call him priest. So he says, I am a Kohen. Now, I'm not a born a Kohen. I'm a Kohen to you Jews in Romania. And here's what I say to the Jews. To the Jews in Bucharest, who were villed, they didn't know anything, you know, they were unlearned. He said, The Kohen gets the Zroah, the Lachayayim, and the Keva. That's what I want from you. I want the Zroah, the Lachayayim, and the Keva, with the arm and the neck and, uh, you know, the haunch. And uh, the Zroah, I want you to put on filling every day. <laughs> and the Lachayim, what was that again? Oh, uh, yeah, the cheeks, he says, I want you, nobody should uh, be shaved, you know, with a razor. And the cave up, I want you to eat kosher food, kashras. <laughs> and he wove that together. It's very good, you know. But having his personality, I imagine that the left-wingers who were well-connected with the government and some were rich, they probably threatened him. You threaten him, he's the wrong guy. He threatens you back. You understand? He wasn't a diplomat at all. And by the time it's over, uh, they were at war with each other. And since they were at war with each other, they were moshing on him. They used their connections with the government, and they pretty much got him arrested and thrown out of the country. You know, it's a, it's a complicated story. First, he was in trouble, then Montefiore got in and got him out of trouble, then he got in trouble again, and then another guy got him out of trouble. This all happened in 1860. So by the time he's 55 years old, let's put it this way, he's deported from the country. I mean, literally. They came to maybe on a Shabbos or something like that, the cops, the Romanian cops, and they arrested him, and drove him to the border and put him on a boat uh, to cross the Danube, and now you're in Bulgaria, and the heck with you.
which was a, a big busyness, and uh, he immediately went from Bulgaria to the headquarters of Turkey to Constantinople to try to complain to the Turkish government that they, because Romania technically was under Turkey, and they should do something about it. Then he went to Paris and to, create, to make an international scandal. Obviously, nothing worked. I remember at the end, Romania said, like, if you promise to resign and get out of here, we'll, we'll give you a few bucks. So it, the whole thing turned into Mapach Nefesh. In the midst of all this, he's writing the Malbim. In fact, when he was in Romania, he started putting out this most remarkable part, which is Malbim Nechumish. And, you know, um, that's where he uh, has his, I've spoken about it before, he has this whole long programmatic uh, essay in which he will show you, it's amazing, if you follow his system, if you follow his system, which is that every drush in the Chazal is Tafka. Um, meaning, when you see an extra hey or an extra vav, or, you know, kefa uh, aloshan, or, uh, what shall I say, xera uh, shava, uh, it's not stam sum in the Velterine. You and I, when we read it, we say, I don't know, it's really based on the hey, if you say so. You just take it as such. Like, a firm person will say, if they say it's all based on the hey, okay, I guess they had a misera. You know? Um, a non-firm person will say, it's so far-fetched, that obviously, you know, it's uh, it's made up. The Malbum will say, first of all, it's real. It isn't real Masorah. Second of all, it's not imposed on the text. If you understand the Hebrew language, Lushan Kodesh, I repeat, properly, which you dummies out there don't understand. Only I, who I'm the genius, which he was, and have studied the Hebrew language inside out, which he had, I understand how the Lushan Kodesh works, and you'll see that all the things in Chazal are Dafka. Meaning, when they say something's from a Zereshava or a Mamatzinu or this, that, and the other, it actually is logical within the confines of the language. And remember, the first volume he published, I've mentioned this many times before, was Vayikra. In the beginning, we had something called the Yelsa Shachar, which has 613 paragraphs explaining all the ins and outs of the Lush and Kodesh and to show you how it works. Now, to be perfectly honest, uh, I went through it once, and it seems to me he worked backwards. Now, when you find a Chazal do this, he writes and says, it's the style of the Hebrew language to write that way. But he does bring a riot to it. So, I mean, I can't make fun of him. But uh, he obviously wanted... So therefore, the Malbim was a classic member of the 19th century Chumash commentators that I've spoken of before. The 19th century produced a whole bunch of people around the Chumash that really are going against the reform, against the Ascola, to try to prove that the Torah Shabbat and Tershavah really one that what you find in, in Chazal is not something made up, but is organically part of Tershavah even though it doesn't necessarily seem that way at first glance. You have the Mecklenburg, the Tzav Kabbalah, you have Samson Rafael Hirsch, you have Dinitziv, you have the Malbim. Am I forgetting anybody? Those are the biggies. And the Malbim is probably the biggest of them, because he's the one who wrote the most lengthy, and he went to whole Tanakh, not just uh, Chumash, or most of Tanakh anyway, and... Um, he, you know, he applied the same methodology when it comes to Nach in the following sense. The Malm is the great enemy of the idea Kefal Haloshan Bemelisa. You find in the Rishonim sometimes, like the Benezra or the Redak, you know, why does it say Hagodol Agivanura or something like that? And sometimes they'll just say Kefal, you know, that the Novi's is repeating it for rhetoric purposes. You know, he could have avoided it. But in order to, to, to make an impression on the reader and listener, he says in very vivid language, he uses three adjectives when he really could have used two. Right? Uh, which is just, which is a, one Mahalach in the Roshonim. Right? One Mahalach in the Roshonim. Um, I remember, reminds me, many moons ago, when I was in the Nair Yisrael, Rabbi Weinberg, that thing, he said Friday morning, Parsha. They talk for an hour in the parsha. That's what he did. You know, he sit down and talk. And I remember, and I brought a Tanakh with me or something like that. And he said, "Why is this repeated?" Maybe he's doing the haftar. And I said, "It's just a kefal lashon." And I showed him it's in the redak. Okay, you know, probably was humoring me. The Malbim would be the antithesis of that. If it says, you know, gila rina each one is something separate. And uh, you know, he matova manoim. You know, Tov is one thing, Noim is another. And uh, really, you know, uh, every word, 
has a very unique meaning, and therefore everyone is, is dafka, and is, is necessary for the pshat. Now, yeah, you can like it or not like it. No, it's 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 nice and very from. Uh, he thought it would sweep the world, and he thought it would blow the the masculine out of the park. But he was a generation behind. Uh, by the time Malbim was publishing his works, they were what you call post-reform. You know what I mean? Post-maskilah. Most of the Jews just simply weren't from anymore. And therefore you say, oh, look how the Tanakh works. Eh, they don't care about that. You know what I'm saying? They weren't it's like today, you know, they, 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 they didn't study Tanakh. And the firm world in general doesn't study Tanakh anyway. It's like fell between two stools. Nevertheless, the mom put out this amazing thing on, on, on almost all of the Tanakh. And while I won't say it made a revolution the way he had hoped it made in the 19th century Judaism, he definitely entered the uh, pantheon of the classic commentators on the Tanakh, on Torah and In other words, the, the, where the Malbim is today is, you know, you have Rashi and uh, Ramban and Ibn Ezra and Archaim and, you know what I mean, and Radak and Ralbag and this and that and the other, and Malbim. Okay? And the Malbim. In fact, to my mind, he's probably the last, uh, latest and last of the great Bible commentators that we have in Judaism. I mean, who's, uh, am I missing anybody? Who's post-Malbim? No. You, you see, the, when he put out, it's, it's like another, you know, Rishon, in the sense, you know, uh, like in the Middle Ages, they put out things in the whole Tanakh. Um, but, in his case, you know, he's not an Ibn Ezra. Ibn Ezra, they said, you know, wasn't a big scholar in, in Talmud. The Alma was a gone out here. Okay? And I'll tell you again, I remember in that book, Gedolim from the Society, he said people in Lithuania were always wondering, why is he wasting his time writing on Tanakh books? He should be publishing Lambdas and all the rest of it, which he could do. That's an interesting thing with the Malbim. He chose to go into this Mahalch of Tarsh and Tarsh of That's That's what interested him. <clears throat> now, uh, those who knew, knew that he knows Shas and Postkim and all that also. And therefore, after he was kicked out of Romania and he nursed his grudge in Paris, he went back to um, Russia, to the Middle East, uh, Eastern Europe, which in this case was the Russian Empire. Here, again, he was invited by a lot of places to become the Rov, because when you get him, you get somebody who's not just a Rov, but he's a fantastic speaker, and he was a personality, and, you know, the, the masculine, the community in Russia, the from ones anyway, with double Machshim, somebody knows Tanakh. He published books on philosophy, on uh, Diktuk. Uh, these are things that are not so well known. On Kant, I mean, you know, in addition to Tanakh, so he clearly, like you're getting him for Rav, you're not getting some narrow little guy. You're getting somebody who's who knows what the narrow little guy does, but knows of felt more. This is this very broad perspective. All I can tell you is that um, he got a bunch of uh, positions. Uh, he took, you know, I'm going to go through all of them. He was in, in, in Lunchitz and in Mogilev and down in, in elsewhere. Uh, and each time he, went, he, he moved from communities, I mean, he got a raise, you know. I mean, it wasn't stupid. He removed to was a larger community and more money. But still, and by the way, his father-in-law died, and you know the the, the the money went away, something like that. You know, his financial position wasn't great after that. But um, he was all in Tsarist Russia, and the problem in Tsarist Russia was that the Russian Jewry already was very divided in any in all these communities. Yitzhak Khan had the same thing, and you had your left wing, your right wing, your Hasidim versus Misnagdim. Masculine versus this one and that one. You had these types. And um, Mom was a very strong personality. And he found, you know, that it's, let's put it this way, to be successful, to be a Rabbi Yitzhak Khan, you had to be very diplomatic. The, the height of the Chachma, to be a successful rabbi in Russia, especially in the second half of the 19th century, was precisely in knowing how to, um, what's the right word, you know, keep the non-from uh, happy but without power. You get it? And at the same time, run the community as much as you can in a united way and keep them along the front lines. You know, let me give you an example from America. It's not exactly the same thing in America. 
Who built the yeshivas? The answer is, like near Israel, something like that. Not from money. Not from money. So what does that mean? The Rosh Hashivas had to know how to appeal to people who were not from, but still had a Yiddish, uh, you know, uh, stomach, and uh, persuade them, not in an underhanded way at all, that they should support a Torah institution, even though they themselves are not necessarily from. And uh, on the other hand, don't give any of those donors any shlita over what's going on inside the yeshiva. Right? Now, in order to do that, you had to be, you know, diplomatic, and you had to know, you know how to run your yeshiva banquets of yesteryear, <laughs> and how to win the support of uh, people who are not like you, but at the same time, not let that affect who you are. That's what was necessary. Now, the Malbim wasn't like that. The Malbim came to a town, and first of all, he would say, you know, how come the poor are being screwed over by everybody over here? What's with the rich? And the rich would say, you know, you stick to the rabbit over there. And, you know, the mom would say like this, yeah, but uh, what about the Yusam and the Almana? See, he was a Yusam. They say he knew what Almana is, Mother Ben Almana. They cared about a lot of that. So instantly, when that happened, the local, the brother class warfare, the Hamon Am would love him, the uh, widows and orphans would look to him as a savior. The rich people didn't like it. It looks like he's organizing under, against them. Uh, the Malbim would go out of his way. You know where? There's a wonderful book. Zichronus uh, Rab Maza, the former chief rabbi of Moscow from 100 years ago, 120 years ago. Uh, Yaakov Maza, who was like, I don't know what they exactly, he, he was a Rav Mitam, but he was the, the best of them. So I guess you call him they like a conservative rabbi. That's not the right word, but very right wing, you know. And he wrote these wonderful four volumes of memoirs. He grew up in Russia, nineteenth century. They're just wonderful. He's an excellent writer, and he grew up in Mogilev, which is a small town in, in, in Ukraine. And uh, it's got Misnagdom, it's got Chasinim, it's got Chabad, it's got everything there. From not from uh, the the whole business, and uh, he was in a town when the Malbim was there. And he writes in wonderful, it's, it's a, a, a remarkable, I can't do justice to it in a podcast, uh, wonderful stories. And you see that he was like a Bolshevik, he says. The mom came there, when they hired him to be the Rav, and everybody was excited. And his first Russia, all the uh, rich guys, and the Dayanim and the others sat on the Mizrachman, and they, and they said, we're going to hear another Shagasariyeh. Because he could be if he wanted to. Instead, he gave a simple drasha that anybody can understand based on the Pesukah Meta Parsha. Those he lowered to the level. It's a fantastic drasha. They lumped him, were all disappointed. The rich people all disappointed. The Hamon Am, who always were on the outside of a drasha, it was understood somebody comes and gives a drasha, the people aren't going to understand it. You understand? You, you are dummies. You're not meant to understand it. You're on the outs. And here's a Rav that's speaking to you. And in your kind of Yiddish, and they said, Rebbe Zogvaiter is Aitun's Machaya. Keep talking. We love to hear it. We understand what you're saying. And the mom was basically making a point that the, the Hamonam is the one I'm interested in. These are the people who need build up in the Yiddish guide. They don't want to get the short end of the straw. Then there's a story also. There was a poor lady. She was an Almana. And she was starving. And he said, I'll go into Shutfis with you. I, you know, I don't want to give you charity and, 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 and um, embarrass you. And so she was a good baker, and he said like this, you know, we'll make a shutfus, and he wrote up a star and everything. And um, <laughs> she, she was a very good baker. She made good blintz, I guess what we would call today, um, what do you call it, knishes. And um, they're really good. And he, he provided the capital, and she was maslich and turned into a whole business. And she wanted to pay him, and he said, no. You know, you t- <laughs> he said they're like this. Are you trying to do what the capitalists do? Now that you're making a, prog- a profit, you want to get rid of me? I want you, all the uh, whatever you think is my chilek, plow it back into the business. You see? And make sure you hire orphans to work for you. You see what I'm saying? See the type of guy he was? Um, hey, there's a lot of these stories in which you see in general, he got the richy riches angry, and since it was Tsarist Russia, they always got him kicked out. Uh, the story he says is, he gave a speech in Mogilev. It was so popular, the streets were mobbed. You know what I'm saying? The streets were mobbed. Russia doesn't like mobs. 
Like, who, who's this guy? Is it, you know, this could turn into a revolutionary situation. We don't like mob speakers. We want a regular rabbi, he's boring, and nobody comes, and they threw him out of town. And so he ended up going from town to town. In his last years, when he's in his 60s, uh, he'd get kicked out of town because the rich guys didn't like the fact that he's not kowtowing to them, especially because he always used to say like this, let's see the books. You know, how are the local taxes of the Jewish community really being uh, distributed? And, you know, it was dirty. They, you know, the, the money for the, 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 the poor were being overtaxed, the rich were being undertaxed, the poor weren't getting the money that was really designed for them. You know, there's a thousand ways of doing this shtick. And unfortunately, this is the world of our grandfathers. <laughs> you know? And he said like this, I want, to br- I want to bring a flashlight in here and see what's going on. Next thing you know, he's called to the Russian uh, governor and he said, you're expelled. You know and by it's a famous story. The Russian, go- he said, you know, what happened to you? He says, well, they, you know, they were demolishing on me. And that's why I was kicked out of the last town. And he said, it's funny, the Jews have so many, the Russians said to him, to the Malam, the Jews have so many Malshin. And the Malam man so he says, in this country, you know, they encourage Malshinists, get it? It's, it's, that's who Tsarist Russia is. You get ahead by being a Malshin, therefore it brings out the worst qualities in people. Uh, be that as it may, it's famous as he got older, so he was publishing more and more of the uh, Tanakh, and this gave him international reputation. He also was known as a fantastic speaker, and so they offered him to be the chief rabbi of New York in 1879. Isn't that interesting? In 1879, is already before the Russian Jews start coming in, but he had X number of from shuls in New York, not that many, New York City, and they said he will be like Yaakov Yosef was a couple years later. He should be the rabbi of all the synagogues and bring a seder and order into there. Now, he didn't go. They, I used to read that he died on the way there, but it's not true. And by the way, he wouldn't have worked in America. It would be like another Romania. Get it? He would run up against the, the, the Gaboim of the different synagogues. And it, it it, that's not what was good for him. He should have taken a position like in, in Vilna or something like that when it was offered to him. But the Russian government probably would have uh, bothered him. At the end of his life, he was offered a bigger community in Kremenshug, where later on all the yeshivas ran away, and he died on the way there. So, uh, let's put it this way. Here's somebody, here's a guy who wanted to be a success in the rabbinate. That's what his thing was wrong. He didn't have the qualities. What should I say? He didn't have the right Yetzirah <laughs> for it. How to be diplomatic with the, with the rich and powerful. That's my understanding. Uh, you know, he could, if he saw something going wrong, he couldn't help call a spade a spade. That is admiral quality in the individual. It's not how to win friends and influence people in the rabbinate. I'm sorry to say it, because really he was right. But, you know, uh, to be a communal rabbi means you have to be able to get along with all the members of the community and push them all in the right direction. That's a very, very big uh, uh, job. And he didn't have that, you see? He didn't have that. So instead, he was this tremendous gone, and he wrote his, his whole style. Let's put it this way. To study Tanakh with the Malam is all partial by itself. Get it? If you want to do Malbin right, you pick a safer, let's say a Megillah or a, whatever, you know, in the Tanakh, and say, forget Rashi, forget Ibn Ezra, forget the Radak. I'm just doing it with the, with the Malbin. That's how you do it. And you'll see his way of dealing with the linguistic issues, with the uh, meaning behind the meaning, with Omek Habshat, because that's what he prides himself on. Uh, you know, this, this whole Malbin style, it's a whole world by itself. Just like the morale is a world, and Hasid is a world, the Malbim is a world. Now today, I, I, I don't know. Uh, I think the Malbim is just like another peerish out there. Uh, you know, no, he's famous, but he's famous precisely because nobody else did what he did. Nobody else was into it. Uh, the Yishi world never understood why he's into this Tanakh stuff. Um, he thought, like I say, it would blow the Haskal out of the park. It didn't do that because at the end of the day, he was a very from guy. He saw total, totally in Torah thoughts, Hashkafa. He knew more than the average guy at that time about European culture. He did read a Welt. He was a genius. He knew the philosophy and the culture, but he couldn't make that bridge that would, uh, I don't know how to put it, that would sweep the people. I, I'm going to say something with this I end because my time is up. I'm going to compare it with something that you'll laugh at that I'm saying it, but I'm saying make a point. Say the Hertz Chumash, back in the day. The Hertz Chumash, oh, you can't compare with the Malbim, Hertz Chumash succeeded 
in, in winning the, the uh, readership of a hamonum of regular people don't know anything. And it kept them on a firmer track. Uh, that's what the Malmbi wanted to do. And now the, but the Hertzchemish is really dumbed down and written in a certain way to appeal to the Balabas of the 1920s. Not today, but 1920s. Uh, the Malbim was such a grand business that he couldn't, couldn't do that. Anyway, these are just a few thoughts. And with that, I close this down. We're at the end of time. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.